From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. Bob Garfield is out this week. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Since we last checked in, the torrent of sexual assault and harassment allegations has shifted from Hollywood to Capitol Hill, both on the right. Happening right now, new sexual assault allegations against Alabama Senate candidate Roy Moore, a fifth woman now coming forward, accusing him of sexually assaulting her when she was a teenager. And also on the left. Well, U.S. Senator Al Franken is facing allegations of sexual assault. A radio news anchor is accusing the former comedian of groping her and kissing her without consent. Predation followed by defiance in the first case. Grossness succeeded by remorse in the second. Meanwhile, the exhilarating, nauseating torrent of long-repressed rage spirals around us, stirring up the muck. Yes, this is a rape culture. But no, not all offenses are created equal. What is justice? What retribution? Will this moment of reckoning self-immolate before it affects real change? These are some of the questions we address this hour. Questions New York Magazine writer Rebecca Traster has been pondering since she wrote a story about her own encounter with Harvey Weinstein. Starting that night... I began to get anywhere between 5 to 20 emails a day. Wow. Mostly women, some men as well, telling me about predation, harassment, assault, rape in some cases that they had suffered, some recently, some 40 years ago, expressing guilt over having not spoken up. Every day my inbox is full. Is it because there was a chance that this stuff would actually be printed rather than just pushed aside? Is it because, as you wrote in your piece, they were seeing a matrix moment, the fact that they were part of a much bigger pattern? I think it's two things. Yes, to some degree, it's that people are willing to take their calls. Reporters are interested. Newspapers are willing to print the stuff on the front pages. The second thing is the matrix moment, that now that the flood has started, we're talking to our friends and our colleagues. We're understanding the ubiquity. I say in my piece, it's like the house lights have come up and we're seeing the scaffolding on which so many of our professional lives have been built. Roger Ailes the chief of Fox News, his villainy, the employment of spies, payoffs, threats, and behavior that goes into downright illegality, that rivals Harvey Weinstein's villainy almost. And yet the floodgates did not fly open at that point. Right. So I think that there are two reasons why. First, Roger Ailes controlled a massive arm of right-wing media in Fox News. So you had some significant portion of the country having the news of Ailes's villainy ignored Mm. or defended, right? So you take out a huge chunk of the population that's even believing that that's a true story because there's an ideological incentive to not believe it. That's the first thing. When it comes to Weinstein, the right-wing is all in because he's a Democratic donor. So you get that section of the country back. Then you look at the left. A lot of this is coming out of, I believe, post-election rage. You had an example of a moment like this in the weeks before the 2016 election. 
when Donald Trump is caught on tape on Access Hollywood bragging mm-hmm. about grabbing women against their will, and at the same time, more than 20 women accuse him of unwanted sexual assault, really gross charges. There were social media campaigns, there was outrage, there was fury on the left. Of course, again, that fury didn't translate to a right-wing media, which was protecting its presidential candidate. But on the left, it felt like, okay, this is a transformative moment. We're seeing what Donald Trump did, and we're also having a conversation about how pervasive it is. And we have the tools at our disposal to get this man to not have a job. We can vote in the election. But of course, it didn't work. The predator, the confessed predator, gets the biggest job. And I think that the fact that a lid was put on the rage that was brewing then, a year ago, made the left just ready to explode. The biggest job, not necessarily the worst behavior, just behavior that is utterly unacceptable. Trying to put things on a spectrum has created a a lot of confusion. Isn't this issue of, you know, if you give somebody a salacious look in an elevator, are you going to be put on the same list as Harvey Weinstein? It's not black and white like kill the witch, right? Right. Which is how those who are defending against this treat it as though, oh, no, the next guy who who tries to ask a woman up is going to be thrown in the stocks. There has not been an example that I can think of so far, and it could happen any day now, but so far there has not been an example of somebody who has been grossly punished for something that seems like a totally minor infraction. Gay Talese said that Anthony Rapp, talking about being 14, assaulted by uh, Kevin Spacey, Talese said in a particularly infelicitous phrase, I think, he should just suck it up. Mike Barnacle, um, the journalist, who is a regular on Morning Joe, where Mark Halperin, who has lost his perch on Morning Joe, but he was also a regular. They were colleagues. Mark Halperin, who was accused by multiple women while he had professional power over them, young, ambitious women in the news business, against their will, pressed his penis against them in the office. I mean, this is not a gray area, what Mark Halperin has been accused of and to some extent has admitted to, that happened on multiple occasions to women he had power over. Mm -hmm. And he very appropriately, I feel, lost his deal with HBO. He lost his perch on on Morning Joe. And Mike Barnacle sort of bemoaned this and said, sure, what he did was bad. And of course, he should face consequences. And then he said, but does he have to be killed? How many times (laughs) does he have to die? And I read that and I was like, he hasn't died. No one sentenced him to death. And you and many others have made the point that he's lost his job. But we need to weigh loss against loss, which is hard because it's very difficult to measure the opportunity cost of so many women denied raises, denied employment, or discouraged right out of the business because of these often traumatizing events. Right. And it's also just trying to conceive of it as something that happens across industries to all kinds of women whose names we don't know, who aren't beloved actors, who aren't on our television sets every morning the way the individual accused men are. Right. And so it's very easy for us to immediately feel... For example, the way that Gay Talese talks about, oh, poor Kevin Spacey and this great actor his career brought down. Kevin Spacey has now also been multiply accused of molesting young 
boys against their will of serial assault against underage boys. Imagine the harm done to them. The difference is Anthony Rapp is an exception because people do know who he is. Lots of the people who Spacey is accused of having hurt Mm -hmm. are guys we don't know. So it's harder for us to get to the point where we think, oh, poor, nameless men who were damaged. And in the case of the women, Mark Halperin, who are these women? We don't know who they are. We can imagine, oh, this is Mark Halperin whose face I know. And I feel sorry about what's going to happen to him because he exists in our imagination in part because he's had a powerful career. That's part of the point. Men are more likely to have a claim on our affection and our sympathy. And I don't think it's wrong. I want to be really clear. I do not think there's anything wrong with considering the fate's of these guys and feeling sympathy for them. We understand that it is okay to have anxiety about hurting the people, even who deserve to lose their jobs, Mm -hmm. but we don't reflexively engage those same, same sympathetic impulses toward the women who were never allowed to become the faces on your television and movie screens. We don't know who they are, but their families have been damaged too. Their wages lowered, in many cases driven out of the profession. There's a researcher who has said that 50% of women who face harassment change jobs within two years of that harassment. And if the harassment is particularly bad, that's 80%. We, we always wonder about wage gaps and why aren't there women in these professions. Many of them are driven out by these kind of pervasive, ubiquitous circumstances. And we don't spare a lot of our sympathy worrying about the kind of economic, social, and professional impact that that's had on those women. When you're seeing the Matrix moment, it's often the victims who are doing the soul-searching. And they're asking, am I complicit? Was I working the system? You have to live within the system. How did that shape my own behavior? What do you make of that reckoning? Well, that is exactly one of the costs. It's one of the additional tolls that is paid by the people who have less power in the situation. It is true. This is a moment unlike any other where some of the bad actors themselves are doing some of the accounting, but a huge amount of painful reckoning is being done by women who are wondering what their roles were, wondering to what degree they profited or lost professionally from their participation in this kind of behavior or their refusal to participate in it. I find it very sad because I do think there are a lot of men who are scared. A lot of them have spoken to me. Oh no, what if I did something and there's this fear that there's going to be retribution, that they're going to be asked to pay for it. And that's good. I I think it's important that men are, are sort of coming to terms with this. But I don't yet know how many of those men are also thinking, what damage did I do? There's a kind of like, oh, my God, I was a part of this or I profited from it. But I don't yet think that there's a huge amount of consideration for what happened to the woman that I did this to? What became of her? Did I fundamentally alter the circumstances of her life, of her work, of her economic stability, her social or emotional stability? I haven't yet heard a lot of that. You write about a generational divide in response Mm. to all of these revelations. What do they say about what we've been conditioned to accept as normal? So on the one side are older women who came of age in the years before Anita Hill's groundbreaking 1991 testimony against Clarence Thomas, in which she accused Thomas, who was then nominated for the Supreme Court, of having sexually harassed her when they worked together. Um, He obviously got confirmed for the court anyway, but 
her testimony was a real shift in an American understanding of what sexual harassment was and that it wasn't just how guys were in the office, but that it was actually, it was a behavior that did material damage to women as a class. And you have quoted the sociology professor Heather McLaughlin at Oklahoma State, who found that about half of women in their late 20s who experienced harassment started looking for a new job within two years. And for those who endured more serious harassment, the figure's around 80 percent, and many opt to leave their profession altogether and to start over in less male-dominated fields where the pay is lower. All that stuff, I don't know whether that relates to women post-Anita Hill or pre-Anita Hill? Well, I think her study is of women post-Anita Hill, but the difference pre- and post-Anita Hill that had been observable to me is that women raised in an era before sexual harassment was identified as something that did damage to women and and was, in Mm -hmm. fact, on some level criminal— just expected this to be the way that men behave toward them in the office. And in fact, some of them sort of pride themselves on having gotten through it themselves and, oh, come on, come on, toughen up. And I don't I don't mean to say this critically. I think it is the way that generations of women were raised. Okay, you can go into the workforce, but you should know they're going to grab you, they're going to harass you, and you, can, you have a series of choices in how you want to deal with it. But then post Anita Hill, there's this assessment that in fact this behavior is wrong and that it shouldn't happen. It's unprofessional to criminal. And women raised with those attitudes, thinking my opportunities are not supposed to be determined just by men and certainly not by their sexualized behavior toward me, those women are more likely to say this is not okay. So that suggests that this wave we're experiencing now could actually augur change? Or is it just part of an ebb and flow? This moment will fade. And I write in the piece about my fears about tremendous backlash and punishment for this moment. Mm -hmm. We know, looking at the history of social change in this country, that when there is a huge leap, when it comes to talking and understanding, you know, gendered and racial disadvantage, you get slapped back. And I'm very fearful about what form it will take. At the same time, These explosive moments, even if there is retribution that follows them, even if there is backsliding, they're part of the process of forward motion. And this one is going to be formative for a lot of people. I think that you're going to see a generational shift that's going to play out over decades. There will be retribution and backlash, but I also think that we will look back on this moment as being formative in the long term. Rebecca, thank you very much. Thank you, Brooke. Rebecca Traster is a writer-at-large at New York Magazine and The Cut. Her recent article is called Your Reckoning and Mine. Coming up, the reckoning continues. Why didn't we believe Juanita Broderick? Because we preferred not to. This is On the Media. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. If this is a time of reckoning, for many Americans, it may have to include a reconsideration. In February 1999, during a sort of 
denouement in one of our nation's seemiest political scandals, a woman previously known only as Jane Doe Number 5 told her story. He starts to uh, bite on my top lip and I try to pull away from him. And then he forces me down on the bed. And I just was very frightened. And I tried to get away from him, and I told him no. And unlike today, with the public and the media for the most part believing women's awful stories about powerful men, in 1999 we mostly chose not to believe Winita Broderick. You're saying that Bill Clinton sexually assaulted you, that he raped you? Yes. And you have no, there's no doubt in your mind that that's what happened? No doubt whatsoever. Last week, MSNBC host Chris Hayes tweeted, Democrats and the center-left are overdue for a real reckoning with the allegations against him. And this week, New York Times columnist Michelle Goldberg wrote, I believe Juanita Broderick. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you. Given all of the political commotions swirling around Bill Clinton and allowing that one or more of the accusations of sexual predation against him are true. How is it that he managed to last two full terms as president? Well, I think part of it was that the sexual predation wasn't taken particularly seriously. When people talked about Bill Clinton, they talked about affairs. Are you prepared tonight to say that you've never had an extramarital affair? I'm not prepared tonight to say that any married couple should ever discuss that with anyone but themselves. So it was talked about less in terms of power and harassment and violence and more in terms of sex. And so the question, as I remember it, was, do you impeach a president for sex? And most people's answer was no. And to most people, impeachment seemed like this absurd overreach. But it was a completely different framework that we had at the time for talking about sex and power and their interaction. The stories of women like Paula Jones and Kathleen Willey are awful. Paula Jones told Sean Hannity last year that she absolutely would fear for her life under a Hillary Clinton presidency. Why wouldn't we? I mean, there's been so many things happen to so many people that are connected to the Clintons. And we are... um, You feel for your life. Absolutely, I feel that way. Even as we can dismiss some of these particular claims, we can't necessarily dismiss the women, right? I mean, even if they willingly appear on Breitbart and openly support Donald Trump. Well, I don't think you dismiss women because of their politics. But at the same time, I think that the totality of their accusations does impinge on their credibility, right? I mean, Kathleen Willey's description of Bill Clinton groping her sounds totally plausible. But when you think about the fact that she also accused the Clintons of having her husband murdered and her cat killed, it's a very different sort of dynamic than what you usually see in these cases. There were so many bad actors skulking around the margins of every single Clinton scandal that there really was this Hall of Mirrors aspect to it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I still don't know what I make of Paula Jones's accusations. But what I do know is that she was treated with a degree of kind of contempt and 
certainly classism that nobody deserves. Jonathan Chait, writing in New York Magazine in 2016, before the election and well before Weinstein, he wondered if progressives' reluctance to renounce Bill Clinton as abusive was tactical. He wrote, we could have had this reassessment of Clinton's moral fitness last year, but maybe it seemed like keeping the presidency out of Trump's hands was more important. And maybe that decision was understandable. Is that okay? I mean, I think that this is very complicated, right? Because it really is true. You know, to some extent, I have a fraction of a degree of sympathy for some of the people who are saying that they're voting for Roy Moore because the party that controls Congress or the party that controls the White House ultimately has much more effect on policy than the character of the individual. So to some extent, people who are making these really grotesque moral compromises do so, I think, with a fair understanding of how politics works. It's just up to all of us to decide what is too much to justify keeping people whose policies we consider, you know, disgusting and immoral from taking power. Most people, I think, think that sleeping with a 14-year-old falls into that category. And I think most people think that forcible rape falls into that category if they believe that that's what Bill Clinton did. But you believe Juanita Broderick. What do you do with that? You know, I'm really not sure. And I think that's one reason why, you know, I would have been happier if I never did really have to reckon with this stuff. There is something uncomfortable for me and and maybe morally wrong with, you know, saying that we're going to render someone a pariah because they can't prove themselves innocent in a situation in which there is no way to prove yourself innocent. At the same time, I think that if these two sets of facts were presented to me and probably to a lot of us with different names attached or with no names attached, it would be pretty clear that Juanita Broderick's story, and not just her story, the fact that she told five people contemporaneously, had no interest in going public, and was sort of dragged into the limelight against her will, it's hard to disbelieve her. It's hard for me to think of a of a different explanation for this set of facts. Do you think we're living truly in a different world now? Would Anita Hill have kept Clarence Thomas off the bench? Well, I don't know. I mean, we have a president who says on tape that he likes to sexually assault women, who makes no pretense of believing that women are equal, and who has paid no price for either the things that he's admitted to doing or the things that he's been accused of doing. Michelle, thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much. Michelle Goldberg is a columnist for The New York Times. When the Me Too campaign first went viral a month ago, it was largely credited to a white Hollywood actress. The campaign began with actress Alyssa Milano, who tweeted, quote, If all the women who have been sexually harassed or assaulted wrote Me Too as a status, we might give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. While Milano amplified the campaign and likely made it go viral, it was in fact founded more than a decade ago by black activist Tarana Burke to offer help to disadvantaged and unsupported women and girls. Burke has said that the movement is, quote, bigger than me and bigger than Alyssa Milano. Neither one of us should be centered in this work. 
But as she cautioned on CNN last week, I definitely want women of color, black women and girls, native women and girls. I want them to know that they are heard. I want them to know that this movement and this work is for them. Sexual violence knows no race, no color, no gender or class. But the response to sexual violence does. And I don't want us to get pigeonholed into a racialized or, or classist or, or sexist or gendered response to this moment, because often when that happens, we get left out. Amidst the wall-to-wall coverage of the assaults and the Me Too outpouring on Twitter, there's a nagging question. Whose stories of sexual harassment get airtime? And what is the impact of all of this coverage outside the coastal bubble? Sarah Smarsh is a journalist from rural Kansas. She writes about class, gender, and what the media get wrong about working-class middle America. She says that the Me Too moment is having an impact, even on the coverage of the Topeka State House. The Topeka Capital Journal and Kansas City Star have both reported in depth on harassment, assault on former female campaign staffers, lobbyists, and interns, and failure to address those issues on both sides of the aisle in the state legislature. So the broader discussion is definitely happening on the ground here in a way that is both disturbing and heartening. Yeah, for once, it seems as if a coastal elite story has legs and value outside of our own echo chambers. We're talking about 50% of the population, women on both sides of the aisle uniting to say no more about this. And for that matter, some of the accused men are on both sides of the aisle. So while recent social movements like Black Lives Matter or discussions about transgender rights definitely were covered here, and for that matter, had local activists bravely speaking out, there perhaps is something to be said for a movement that involves rich white women. So, <laughs> What about real life? Has the discussion permeated there? I mean, have you heard from your friends or family about this? Yeah, so my dad is a lifelong construction worker and an open-minded progressive guy. My dad was helping me hang a new pair of French doors, and I went and got him a glass of iced tea, and he said, you know, I've been thinking about all this, and I'm noticing you brought me an iced tea. Should I have offered to get you an iced tea? (laughs) You know, I think somehow this national story, it's making it into discussion in corners of America that don't necessarily have political agency, but they do have ability to make decisions thoughtfully in their own lives, like my dad. And I was really touched by that. So many of the accused, Weinstein, Louis C.K., or the Democratic lawmakers that were investigated by the Kansas City Star, championed feminist causes. And you've come across this contradiction yourself as a young journalist working at supposedly progressive media outlets. Well, having begun in agricultural work and then in my teens, I started about a seven or eight year journey of working in the service industry and being a young bartender and waitress. I once had this frequent customer who would literally tell me he was going to rape me when I left my work, and my male boss just thought it was funny. That assault didn't come to pass, but it was it was a kind of climate of terror. My first job in a print newsroom, one of the male editors took 
a very special interest in me lurking around and in my space and telling me about his personal life. And I didn't even understand what was going on, but I dreaded going to work every day. I had an internship at WNBC. I remember someone in the investigative news unit asking if I would serve as like a physical distraction for some of the undercover investigation that was going on. (sighs) I remember also being criticized for ordering pasta over lunch because I that whole summer got a lot of signals that I needed to make sure that I stayed thin or got thinner maybe. You know, one of the incredible things about this Me Too movement is that you would think that I have been consciously processing all of these things all along, but it's really even I who very intentionally became a freelance writer to, in part, distance myself from that sort of toxicity. Even I, with all of that mindfulness, didn't realize the length of the list that I could make. We all have that list. And until this uh, recent national conversation, I had been carrying it around with me, but I, I hadn't yet really taken stock of the extent to which my own profession has sort of terrorized me. So the story has relevance all across the country, but I wonder if it has in every class. What are the stakes for the food service worker, as you were, as I was, the 16-year-old who Mm -hmm. depends on, whose family may rely on Mm -hmm. that income? The onus for bringing forth the stories that are now unheard, bigger stories than actresses on casting couches in sheer numbers, that onus is going to be on reporters to go find them. You know, I can think of a couple of stories of uh, women in less privileged class situations. Earlier this year, there was a huge scandal in the Marine Corps. Hundreds of male Marines were sharing nude photos, I understand most of which were obtained without consent, of female Marines along with rape and assault threats, plans to stalk and menace them. When that story came out and it did get national attention, I remember a wave of just very brave female Marines and former Marines coming forward and sharing their stories. But for some reason, that story didn't ultimately light a fire in the public consciousness. And I think it's probably safe to say that's because it isn't affluent young women who end up in the military. Mm -hmm. A couple of years ago, the AP reported It was like a six-year analysis. About a 1,000 police officers had lost their badges for raping and propositioning citizens and other sex crimes. And the victims were, by and large, young, poor females, I would say disproportionately women of color. They were sometimes compromised by addiction or they had criminal records. They were women who were unlikely to file a complaint because of their economic and social vulnerability. And certainly unlikely to generate a headline. Absolutely. In in particular, because having criminal records, some of their life stories in the American mind correlate with the bad guy. They only have themselves to blame. This is a, a common trope applied to women in any case. But you've suggested that the attention that is being shined on white people of privilege, that's how much social progress begins. Those with the most relative power within an oppressed group are often the first to be heard and validated and gain traction. With the suffrage movement, that happened to be white middle-class women who got most of the attention, while, of course, there were women of all backgrounds and and colors doing the work. And currently, within groups that are fighting for 
racial equality or LGBTQ rights, other oppressed groups that are fighting for progress, within those groups, you can see some distinction along class lines about who is heard. So that doesn't make it right, but it does seem to be sort of the way that history repeats itself. I don't want to minimize the incredible gains that have been made by the sacrifices and brave risks that people with no economic agency or racial privilege took. But but I do hope that this fascination America has with Hollywood that creates this empathy toward women who are talking about the casting couch will shift culture in such a way that a space will be made for less privileged women to be heard. Sarah, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Brooke. Sarah Smarsh is a journalist. Her book on class, the American working poor, and her upbringing in rural Kansas will be out in 2018. Coming up, can we separate the art from the artist? What I mean is, can we still laugh at Louis C.K.? This is on the media. I'm Ira Flato, host of Science Friday. For over 30 years, our team has been reporting high-quality news about science, technology, and medicine. News you won't get anywhere else. And now that political news is 24-7, our audience is turning to us to know about the really important stuff in their lives. Cancer, climate change, genetic engineering, childhood diseases. Our sponsors know the value of science and health news. For more sponsorship information, visit sponsorship.wnyc.org. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. As the list of the alleged and admitted abusers grows, so too grows hope that maybe the status quo can change, for real and for all women. But if change is in the air, it's not yet reflected in the coverage. Lily Loofborough, culture critic for the week, says that these headline-grabbing scandals tend to follow a predictable arc. Shock and outrage after the initial revelations, followed by acceptance of the problem as the list of victims grows, followed by panic and confusion and doubt as the list of victims continues to grow, followed by backlash. The coming crisis that I fear is that a single event that will be disproven will result in a lot of people dismissing the phenomenon as a whole. And hundreds of women who've come forward with stories of sexual misconduct by their peers, colleagues, and employers will be washed away because of one false story. This myth that women somehow profit off of accusing men is really muscular (laughs) and very available to us. And that's hard to understand for anyone who's spent a lot of time on social media because most of these women who come forward with stories about famous people who are beloved results in these women getting death threats and rape threats and their careers being destroyed. But it is the way that a lot of people think. And so I think one of the tasks for us as we confront this moment is to try to dismantle some of those really powerful cultural scripts you offer a way to unpack these scripts with a set of terms, some of which already exist and some of which you've come up with. The first one is the identifiable victim effect. 
Right. It's easier to identify with Rose McGowan, who is someone people know. As the number of accusers grow, we grow a lot less charitable, both because we suspect them of taking advantage of an opportunity to advance their careers, but also because we just are not capable of empathizing with crowds the way we are capable of empathizing with a single person. Another term you say we should embrace is the just world hypothesis. The just world hypothesis is very comforting because we assume that injustice is rare and competently dealt with. When we find out that, in fact, that's not true and rampant injustice has been everywhere and we have not seen it, there's real psychological relief at reverting to a less confusing status quo and to deny that this is happening. Now, these are both pre-existing ideas. You've also come up with a few new phrases. For instance, the anti-bandwagon fallacy. The belief that a news item's truth content actually diminishes as more people come forward with corroborating stories. You can see that, for example, in some of the GOP responses to the Roy Moore allegations in Alabama, where a lot of Republicans actually see more women coming forward as evidence of a conspiracy <laughs> against Roy Moore. Where do you think we are now in the arc? Do you see any warning signs? I think that the Al Franken allegations that broke on Thursday will prove to be a very interesting test of where we are. As it's become clear that there's a real sexual harassment problem in politics, it's very tempting for a lot of people as they look back and maybe see some behaviors like Al Franken's that they might have engaged in to double down into a protective stance that normalizes a lot of these things. So you think the Al Franken situation may accelerate the backlash? I think it might. And I think the other thing that might accelerate the backlash is because we haven't yet really identified hierarchies of harm when it comes to all of these different forms of sexual misconduct, we're also not seeing, quote-unquote, punishments being meted out equally or fairly. Danny Masterson, for example, who's best known for playing Hyde on that 70s show, stands accused currently of raping three women, and yet his Netflix deal is still in effect, whereas Louis C.K.'s professional network has collapsed. I think that a lot of these allegations, because so many of them are coming so hard and fast, are actually turning into an inverse popularity contest where some of the most beloved figures are experiencing the biggest backlashes themselves. So how do we break out of the cycle? How do we avoid backlash and move toward real positive change? We have to use extraordinary caution in our own thinking. And I think that every time that we reach a conclusion like, well, she must be lying or this can't be real, we need to recognize that that response is coming from a place of frustration, <laughs> a place informed by the just world fallacy, a place informed by the victim identification effect, that we are creatures who have a lot of cultural programming that we're not aware we're running. In order to do that, we also have to start recognizing and trying to anatomize what I see a lot of these accused men doing. One of those things is I identified this phenomenon called the male bumbler, mm -hmm. which is a man who claims not to understand at all that these advances were unwanted. He had no idea. He's amazed and befuddled and really repentant, but felt that he had no power, is astonished to discover that he was perceived to be using it. That is a very widespread excuse among a lot of these accused men who are otherwise extraordinarily social 
navigators. They're very savvy about networking. They've become enormously rich and successful. It's hard to understand how they would fail so completely to read pretty basic social cues. Well, what about the argument for older men who present themselves as unknowing victims of changing mores? Social mores were different 30 years ago, 40 years ago in that there was a very high social tolerance for male misbehavior. That does not mean it was not misbehavior. Those are two important truths to hold in our heads at the same time. No man who groped his secretary thought that what he was doing was right. What they did know is that there would be little or no consequence. Exactly. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brooke. Lily Loofborough is culture critic for the week. To really change the status quo, we must interrogate it, both out in the world and within ourselves. For instance, one way the allegations made against Harvey Weinstein differed from those against Louis C.K. is that Weinstein was important to the film industry, whereas C.K. was important to us. His work seemed to explore our deepest selves. He seemed to know us, and we him. But now, burdened with what we really know, can we continue to love his work? Catherine Van Arendonk, film and TV critic for New York Magazine, says that when considering how or whether to separate the artist from the art, you could start with the view of mid-century French literary theorist Roland Barthes. His whole idea is that once you've produced some kind of art, you don't get to say what happens to it once it's out in the world. The corollary of that as a critic is that I don't have to consider the artist what their intention was. And there is a lot of me that really loves that idea. But when you go about separating art from artist, you can then run into all of these problems where you love work and you love an understanding of that artist that turns out to not actually be at all who they were in life. Did I just hear you say Louis C.K.? <laughs> I may have done. Talk to me about the conundrum that presented to you. Yeah. I loved a lot of his work. I particularly loved his television show, Louis. I loved in particular, how inventive he was. You would start an episode of Louie and not know what you were going to get. Maybe it was going to be a full half-hour-long story where he goes to a war zone and tries to cheer up the troops. And how about the faceless nightmare monsters? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was exciting, and it felt new and fresh. And excruciatingly intimate at times. Absolutely. A show called Louie, made by a guy named Louis C.K., we know that C.K. really has young daughters, and there were, like, fictional versions of them on the show, and we could see him sort of acting out parenting, and we felt like he was giving us himself. And so to then find out that the version of that that we saw on that television show is actually quite different from the version of himself that many female comedians had to cope with is incredibly upsetting. And you, like many of us, had heard the rumors, but you've said that you compartmentalized it. There was Louis, the brilliant TV show, Louis C.K., the great stand-up comedian and auteur, and Louis C.K., the creep. 
Yeah. And I remember feeling just this hope that somehow it wasn't true. I mean, it hadn't been verified yet. I want to believe that I believe accusers when they come forward about something like this. And yet you love that person so much and you just don't want to have to deal with the demand on you as a critic to really wrestle with that new idea of that artist and how it reflects back on what he's produced. But let's talk about our history as art lovers of compartmentalizing. It's a lot easier when the art we love was created by someone who, say, died a hundred years ago. I mean, tell me about John Milton. Right. John Milton wrote Paradise Lost, one of the most remarkable feats of English language literature in the canon. And me preferring his utmost power with adverse power opposed in dubious battle on the plains of heaven and shook his throne. Just an unbelievably brilliant person. And yet he was kind of a jerk too. (laughs) Kind of a jerk? Well, he began to go blind at a young age. And some of actually his most gorgeous, painful poems are about the fear that he's not going to have the capacity to complete the work that he wants to. And so instead of just giving up, he taught his daughters to be the scribes, basically, for his poetry. And in order to do that, they had to learn classical languages because he was a classically trained thinker. And he did that, but then didn't actually tell them anything about what those words meant. In other words, they could read phonetically Greek, but he deliberately denied them the meaning of the words they spoke. Yeah. For what reason? (sighs) He lived at a moment where he honestly felt like the role of a woman in a man's life was to be a helpmeet. Take another example, Tolstoy. Uh His wife was his secretary. They had many, many, many children, so she was also trying to raise their entire family. But she also wrote all of his novels. He wrote these, like, scribbled little tiny notes to himself. She transcribed them? She transcribed them, make them into readable prose. There are these accounts of her being up much later than he ever was as she's, like, struggling to deal with his terrible handwriting. And so we have this memory of Tolstoy as this remarkable novelist. And yet there is this history of women's labor that is completely erased. And then... In the modern day, you don't have flawless biographies for uh, Norman Mailer or Philip Roth. It's easier to assess older works without that assessment being hijacked by the behavior of the creator. Yeah. At this moment, many of us are confused by the Louis C.K. allegations, and it's a hard case because, as you noted, Louis wasn't only innovative, it was also really lewd. It explored the character's bizarre and embarrassing and intimate sexual fantasies, which we know now aren't just fiction. Can we still love the work in the same way or in a different way or at all? I certainly cannot love the work in the same way. But if you enjoyed that intimate exploration before, why can't you now? That intimate exploration was built on trust, that this was an artistic exploration of human sexuality 
that didn't actually connect to harm being done on real people. And that trust has been violated. This even though he depicted himself in his stand-ups often as a creepy guy who was critiquing his own poisonous sexuality and those of his gender. How do women still go out with guys when you consider the fact that there is no greater threat to women than men? We're the number one threat to women. What we thought we were listening to was a sheep wearing a sign that says, actually, I'm a wolf. It turns out it was a wolf in sheep clothing wearing a sign that says, actually, I'm a wolf. And the whole time, that was a predator staring at the audience, saying real things about how terrible he actually was. I once knew a guy, very good radio producer, back in the 70s, and he always had huge trouble with his wives because he was a jerk. But he always said, I am an artist, I'm a creator, you got to put up with that. To me, that was a kind of personal brush against this idea of the myth of the artistic genius excuses all. Yeah. Louis, he is an artistic genius. He certainly is. Guess what? You don't have to be an awful person to be a good artist. The artistic genius that I am always going to still be able to give him out of everything that has happened, is that because Louis the Show existed, there are now all of these amazing shows that would never have happened. Master of None, Atlanta, Take My Wife. They exist because somebody could go to a television studio and say, it's like Louis, but. Mm. So do you think that he has the opportunity to come back and create again? And should he? I think it's probable that he is going to try to have a comeback. I don't know if he should. (laughs) I certainly know that whatever he makes in the future, I'm never going to be able to recommend it to people who are looking for something to watch without thinking about how the last time my trust was betrayed, their trust is potentially betrayed. And it is going to be really fascinating and really upsetting to watch the comeback tours of somebody like Louis C.K. or all of the other people who have been swept up in this wave. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Catherine Van Arendonk is a TV and film critic for New York Magazine. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Micah Lowinger, and Leah Fetter. We had more help from Monique Laborde, John Hanrahan, and Sarah Chadwick-Gibson. And our show was edited by me. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Terrence Bernardo. Katja Rogers is our executive producer. Jim Schachter is WNYC's vice president for news. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. Bob Garfield will be back next week. I'm Brooke Gladstone. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.